lastly to announce uh, some changes to the seminar program. Uh, uh, seminar A is going to be poker for beginners. <laughs> and, uh, seminar B is to rock for those who are physically challenged. <laughs> and you missed that bit off the tape. Should I do it again? No, I won't. No, no. I, won't, I won't do that. Um, I think conferences should come with a health warning, like cigarettes, because um, they can seriously change your life. 23 years ago, I went to the Brighton Conference. Kerry Ann Wanzak was preaching about Paul's missionary method. And then he was sharing how he in Thailand had put into practice. I was undone. I, from that moment on, I was, you know, he, he, he got me at the first word, you know. I was just, I was just lost. And this was my life. Within a few months, uh, God prophetically called me to be part of uh, planting ten churches. Morris and I started an adventure. He was mad enough to follow me and, uh, and then take over, which is great. And... Um, we uh, uh, began this crazy adventure of planting churches and I'm now at Wyndham, which was the 10th church plant. And so I want to warn you, conferences seriously change your life. I really believe that many of you are going to be, or already are, undone by what has happened here so far. And if not, it's going to happen now. Okay, so... Um, I want to um, broaden the whole talk about uh, soul winning. Um, I'll tell you why. Um, I, I know a lot of the 70 churches that are of relational mission. I want to be honest with you. In evangelism, we are not doing well. We are not doing well. I mean, if we see one person saved a month, we would be rejoicing. We would think war has come. I mean, one, one a week, I mean, it would be a miracle. Daily. Well, that's just a dream. We're not doing well. We're not doing well. And I've been thinking about why is it that we struggle in this area. And I think one of the main reasons is this, that actually as a movement, we didn't start as a missionary movement. We started as a, as a uh, experiencing God movement of encountering the Spirit, being baptised in the Spirit and realising that the, the old structures, the old wineskins were too, too rigid for us. We needed to break out of that. But we didn't have a sense of purpose or direction yet. We really didn't have a theology of the church. It was all being formed. And apostolic foundations were being laid, but I think there were some weaknesses in that. And I think the most fundamental weakness was in the evangelistic foundation. And I think it's still... And so I want to address that today. If we can have the first slide. I want to lay an evangelistic foundation. And there's another reason why I want to do that is because there's church planters and there's existing church leaders here. And uh, I want to give you um, some, I think, foundations that will help you all. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to go at a, a, a pretty fast pace. We're going to cover a lot of things. I want to do three preliminary considerations and I want to do seven uh, key ingredients. So you won't be able to catch up on the notes, but don't worry. If you see me afterwards, I can get your email and I'll just connect you to my drop and you can have the notes in for should you want them. Okay. 
So, take a deep breath. Here we go. Number one, preliminary, preliminary um, considerations. And the first point is this. We need to realise that the current situation is totally unacceptable. We will not get anywhere unless we have come to that conclusion. Let me go to the next slide. This is a quote from Jeremiah, the prophet, you know it well. Then the Lord reached out his hand and he touched my mouth and he said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See today I appoint you over nations, kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overflow, to build and to plan. I believe we've got a Jeremiah ministry in calling. What I mean by this is, notice that he had to destroy four things first, or four destroying actions, before he began to build. I think this is a key principle if we can move forward. There are many things within our existing ways of doing things we have to put to death before we start building. This is what so often happens. A, 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 perhaps a new lead elder gets enthusiastic about his church. He wants to cast a vision and he gets before the church. He's, he's got that thing that rhymes, you know, with the letters all the beginning. You know, he's got all that sort of stuff and he looks really impressive and he presents it to the church with great PowerPoint, you know, just fantastic. And everybody looks blank. And he finds they're not with him. And the main reason is this, because he wants to move from A to B, but actually everybody's very content with A. So why should they move to B? See, the reality is most people are content with what church is like at the moment. You know, we have our perhaps once or twice a year baptisms. That's acceptable. That's, we, like, we like that. It's, it's fine. We've got to get to that point where we are absolutely convinced that this is unacceptable. We are dissatisfied with this. That's where we get back to our history because actually New Frontiers began because we were dissatisfied. Isn't that our origins? We saw how church was without the Spirit and we longed for it. And so people sought the baptism of the Spirit, got wonderfully baptised in the Spirit, subsequently filled, and they knew then that there was a new destiny. So, first thing, preliminary thoughts, okay? The current situation is totally unacceptable. Do you believe that? It will change what we do. Secondly, we must live with a sense of urgency. I love Mark 1. You see on the screen next. Mark 1 is a great calling. I love this passage. I preach much on it. Uh, the call of Jesus to his disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And uh, <clears throat> he uh, just says to them, follow me. And it says, immediately, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Well, if I was there, I'd just want to go home to my wife, just check it out. See if she was happy, because she rules the roost anyway. So... Um, <clears throat> Can you just cut that bit out of the tape before I get lynched? <laughs> Without delay, it says, they left. We've got to do something about this. And we've got to do it now. This is unacceptable. And we need to give it our attention. Now. 
immediately. Martin Luther, next slide, says this. It's a great quote. We should live our lives as if Jesus died yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow. What is that great quote, isn't it? Uh, John uh, Cotter, one of the uh, top Harvard business and leadership uh, professors, said this, that in big corporations, if you ever want to bring change, anything significant to change, then the key ingredient, of all the ingredients, the one that comes at the top is this. You have to get a sense of urgency through every aspect of the organisation. From the kids' work, from the crash work, up to the work with the senior citizens, whatever, every dimension of church life has got to be infected with this urgency to do things differently because it isn't working what we're doing now. You got it? So the first thing, it is totally acceptable where we are. Secondly, this sense of urgency. There's a great passage in 2 Timothy 4. This is J.B. Phillips' interpretation. I urge you, Timothy, as we live in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, who's coming in power, will judge the living and the dead, to preach the word of God, never lose your sense of urgency in season and out of season. I love that translation. We've got to do something about it, and we've got to do something about it now. Thirdly, okay, next slide. Thirdly, we need to destroy the safety idol. We have gone safety mad, haven't we? Health and safety, risk assessment. I can't sit in my chair without doing a risk assessment. This word is, word is averse to risk because the only thing this world has is a long life. Maybe that's all we... You know, you know, living long isn't actually what it's all about, is it? It's about living full, which involves risk. Involves risk. If we're going to change things, then we have got to take some huge risks. This is um, Morris West. This is his um, book, The Shoes of the Fisherman. He says this, It costs so much to be a full human being that there are very few who have the enlightenment or the courage to pay the price. One has to abandon altogether the search for security and reach out to risk, to the risk of living with both arms outstretched. It's about risk, folks. We're going to take, if we're going to change church as it is, we are going to have to take some amazing risk. We've got to do it now because we are not satisfied with our things are at the moment. Yeah? Security is a big thing. You know, when the, the disciples left their boats, the boats and nets were the symbols of security. It's what they knew. That's where they, their eyes went wrong. They returned back to their nets. To their... And let's do that. You know, one minute we... ...of that great uh, Greek leader, Alexander the Great. You know, he was... ...never was... to die young. He never was defeated. And um, he got to the shores of Persia, and there he was grossly numbered. The troops he was facing were far more drilled and skilled. Uh, and uh, the troops said, look, look, it makes much more sense. We go back to Greece, we gather more troops, and we, we attack at another time. This is, this is crazy. And you know the story. Alexander the Great looked at his men and he said, look, get the boats, let's set them on fire. 
so they did. He just said these simple words, either we go home in Persian boats or we die here. So that's the rally call, okay? Let's burn boats of security. The rally call is that we are victorious or we die here. There's a sense of urgency because we're not satisfied with how things are and we realise that they will only change if we take huge risks. This is Helen Keller. You may know about her. She was blind and deaf. Let me just deal with this whole of security once and for all. This is what, with all her difficulties, this is what she said. Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Wow. When you're deaf and blind, every second is an adventure. And that's how God is calling us this morning to live sense of urgency? Are we growing in dissatisfaction? Are we being stirred now? Forget the safety harness. Just risk it. Just risk it. Just risk it. Okay. That's the preliminary. Right. Key components. Here we go. Seven things. I believe if we're going to truly be a missional church, soul winning church, seven things I think we need to grasp. Hopefully all this is intensely practical, though some of it is theological. Okay. First thing I want to say is this. That mission modelling leadership is essential. Mission modelling leadership is essential. I love to go down to Lethbridge in Alberta and uh, meet uh, Jeremy and uh, uh, Faith there. uh, They lead the church there bridge, and I love, to t- I love going out there, going with them out for a meal. I mean, every opportunity, I want to take them out for a meal. Why? Because uh, they do the order, and uh, just as the food arrives, Faith will say this to whoever's serving us. Uh, she will say, uh, we're just going to thank God for the food, and we'd like to pray. Check that. going to nick that. So you see this, this woman, this woman says, you know, I really believe that I've been made purpose. But I really don't know what that purpose is. In fact, I've been spending all my life seeking my purpose. Would you pray that God reveals to me, or that somehow something is revealed to me of my purpose? I mean, what an opening. What an opening. I don't think they got their food eaten that day, but they had an amazing occasion. And you know, that church is probably the uh, most fervent, soul-winning church I know. Always getting people saved, even though they were a small number. Always getting people saved. And the trouble is, they don't keep them for very long because they tend to go off to the mission field. Just do. Why does that happen? Because they set an example. 
See, when Jesus called the disciples to him, he said, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And what did they become? Fishers of men, didn't they? Eleven of them became fishers of men. How did that happen? Because Jesus demonstrated it to them. They saw how it worked. And as a result, wow, they were transformed from fishers of fish to fishers of men. I think a, in book at the moment, Spirit of the Purple Cow, any of you read it? James Galloway has some useful things in it. Wouldn't be my top of my list. But anyway, here's a quote from his. Okay. This is what he says. This is a terrible indictment of the church in the UK. But I fundamentally believe that the reason why the UK is seeing so little new birth is because senior pastors have lost the understanding that they have to be the primary champion for reaching the lost. They have to model it. Wow. Uh, I had dear friends who were part of uh, Ixus Christian Fellowship who was uh, uh, planting churches in London long before we got our act together. They were really fastly outstripping us. There was a reason. Before an elder was appointed, or any congregational leader, they had to prove to the leadership that they truly did the work of an evangelist, even though they might not be an evangelist. They would not be appointed. No matter how good they were as teachers, no matter how good they might be in prophetic, unless they were winning people for Christ personally, they couldn't come on the leadership. Full stop. Wow. That uh, challenges us, doesn't it? Provokes us. Stirs up. Stirs us. I was in a church, I won't mention the name, church's name, uh, and I was amongst the elders. They asked me there because they weren't growing. Nobody got saved. So I said, oh, tell me about your recent encounters with, with sharing the gospel. And this man said, uh, well, I, I, I work in a, a department store. One of our best customers, this old lady, came, came into the store. She said, um, do you know, I've got so much money, I, um, I don't know what to do with it, but I'm not happy. I'm not happy. You know, in fact, I've come in here because I'm gonna, I want to be happy, I'm going to buy a load of things, and I'm still not going to be happy. I know there's something more to life, but I don't know what it is. In fact, do you know, one of my dear friends, one of my lady friends, she said to me that actually there is something more to life. Um, there... Um, there, there, there might be a God. and I, So I've started to think whether there's a God or not. You know, he turned to me at that moment and he said to me, Grantly, should I have said something? <laughs> I'm not laughing. No wonder the church hadn't seen someone saved for two and a half years. No wonder. Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.5 This is Paul's instruction to Timothy, who's not an evangelist. By the way, they're, they're a strange bunch. They really are. Probably only 1% is our gifted in evangelism. 
very small percentage, really, of out-and-out evangelists. But if we are to lead, we are to do the work of an evangelist, whether we are gifted in that way or not. But you keep your, your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Do you see that? It is a duty of your ministry. Got it? It is a duty. Just as much as it is to prepare your sermon for Sunday or to get the management of the church correct. It is your duty. The Bible doesn't have any problems in using that word. We get a bit, sort of in our 21st century, that's a bit sort of directive, isn't it? No. Paul said, it's your duty. It's your duty. You need to do it. Secondly, and I think this is crucial at this current uh, time in our uh, history, we need to hold to a biblical definition of mission. See, I go to conferences, uh, uh, privileged to speak at them, and what I find is this, is that mission has been, the definition of mission is radically changed. The buzzword at the moment is this, everything. Everything. After all, it's the kingdom of God, isn't it? So the mission, everything. This is what Neil says. If everything is mission, nothing is mission. Let me tell you what I see happening. I see a lot of people in our church being immensely busy. They are doing, or rather they are serving an everything agenda. Whether it's been deliberately set in the church or whether they just caught it by osmosis. Anything we can do which has got a bit of a kingdom ring to it, that's the mission of the church. But as a result of that, I think we're seeing less and less people saying, Ooh. I think we need to get back to what I consider the biblical mission of the church. Can I be bold to say it isn't everything? Okay, you can shoot me down afterwards, but I don't care. Never been that diplomatic in my life, have I, not? No, no. It's not everything. Not everything. Let me read you this quote. I am concerned that in all our passion for such things as social justice, renewing society, tackling social problems and healing the sick, we run the risk of marginalising the one thing that makes Christian mission Christian. Namely, making disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, don't Get me wrong, I have a huge social action program in my church. I have key leaders who lead those areas. But I insist this, I insist that every leader of a social action area has a a level of evangelistic gifting. Otherwise, it never gets out of that little group into the church. I give an example, this uh, last month I sat down with each one of them I first of all talked 
at how they could invite the people that they're engaging with in a way that they couldn't refuse. You know, I had a perfect invitation to any of our gospel activities. The second thing I did with them is I, I helped them uh, in order to be able to share the gospel with anybody in their group in a natural way. To make sure they could do that. Because otherwise, what tends to happen, we have lots of people that are under our orbit, or under our umbrella, but they never come under the sound of the gospel. So, I do think Francis Cc's is wrong. Okay. Preach the gospel if necessary, use words. That's what he said. You cannot proclaim the gospel without words. And you are not proclaiming the gospel if you do not use words. Got it? He's dead anyway, so he's not going to argue with me. <laughs> Sorry. Um. See, people have defined the mission as this. Genesis 1. That's the mission. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That's the mission. Or Genesis 12. Great passage that we had Tom preaching on earlier. Uh, you, know, that, you know, we're here to bless the nations. Just think about it. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Etherites. Do you think obliteration of them was a blessing? Was it? So it can't mean that, can it? What does it mean that through Abraham's seed we're going to bless the nations? Well, you can look at what Paul says about it sometime. Okay, just to let that wet your appetite. Some people think that the mission is Paul. Yeah, the great manifesto. Just you read great manifesto. And see how many times it talks about proclamation. You'd be surprised. Because that is a mandate for our social action, isn't it? And yet, right at the heart of all of that is proclamation. Proclamation, proclamation, proclamation. So what is our mission? Just to say there's a great book by uh, De Young, I've already quoted him, and Gilbert. It's called What is the Mission of the Church? Can I recommend that book for you? Because if you want this argument spelt out, they do it brilliantly. Absolutely brilliant. So, this is our mission. It's Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always. The very end of the age. That is the mission of the church. Jesus' last words to his disciples, recorded in all four Gospels in different forms, that is the pivotal point in which we are commissioned with our mission. There is no other mission. Oh, of course, the Gospel definition is much broader than salvation. And we come into all the benefits of the kingdom. And they overspill to the world. But the reason they do that is people get saved. That's the doorway. That's the doorway. That's how it all happens. 
And that's why Jesus is saying, that's where your focus needs to be. Not in other areas, but in this. Because then you get the rest. But you won't get the rest if you don't get the doorway in. Let me read you this quote from the book I just mentioned. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gather these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. See, just ask yourself this. You get the commission, end of Matthew, then the outworking of that in Acts. Yeah? So how did Paul, Peter and the others, Philip, how did they work it out? Did they start a social justice programme? No. We're not that aware of any social action programme other than looking after the, the church needs. Cool, that's a bit radical. They just went out and proclaimed the gospel with signs following to authenticate what they said and the world was beginning to be turned the right way up. Do you see it? I think we have wasted many hours of our folks' time because they've caught the everything mission rather than the Matthew 28. Now that's controversial, but I firmly believe it. I firmly believe it. One more final question. It's true that the blessings of the kingdom are only finally enjoyed by those who have come to the kingdom in repentance and faith. Then it makes perfect sense for the king to give his people as their primary ongoing commission the command to herald at What did Jesus come? He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. So he did not establish a social justice program. He came to save the lost. Bless all those who are called to social justice. I believe I am in my community. But my primary mission is the lost being saved. And the proclamation of the gospel. What I'm about. That's what I live for. That's what pulsates in me. So let me just say one, one last thing. It says it in Mark, it says it in Matthew, that Jesus, that Jesus will not return until there is happiness on the earth. Now it says this. If we want to hasten the day, and I don't know about you, I want Jesus to come back now. The only way we're going to hasten the day is by the gospel being proclaimed to every ethnos, every ethnic group, every speaking group, every people group on the earth. Then he will return. So let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Okay? You look a bit shocked. Three. Okay, number three. Is this helpful? Laying a foundation, we've got to get this firmly established, then we will rock it. Third thing is this. We need to build authentic communities. 
what is the most attractive ingredient? Well, let me answer that by the opposite. This is Jesus speaking about the Pharisees. Matthew 23, just some selected verses. I don't think the verses are up there, but you'll, you'll read the whole chapter. It's the seven woes. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads, they put on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying. See, the first ingredient and why Jesus was so outspoken about it was hypocrisy. And it just destroys our witness when we are not what we say. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. In fact, one of the greatest testimonies we can have is to share our weaknesses and our frailties and speak about how God still loves us and hasn't given up on us. That's great. So, it's not about being perfect. It's about being authentic and true, yeah? Tony Campano uh, tells his story of when he met um, Desmond Tutu and asked him why he was an Anglican because most uh, people of his ilk were, were Methodists or Baptists. And he said, well, one day I was walking in the midst of the apartheid. I was walking down the street with my mother on the pavement and I saw this gentleman, this very elegant gentleman coming, on the opposite, coming opposite to us, a uh, white man with a hat, and uh, we, as we would normally do, we just stepped off the pavement because, of course, being white, he had rights of, of passage. And we were just about to step into the dirt when this gentleman, he took his step off the pavement into the dust. He came up to us, he took his hat off, and he said, Good morning, madam. What a lovely son you have. Put his hat back on and continue to walk. Desmond Tutu said, who's that man? Mother said, that's the Anglican vicar. Desmond Tutu said, that moment in time, he said, I want to be an Anglican vicar. I want his God. My case rests, doesn't it? Authenticity. I want to tell you a frustration that Evangelists have. Anybody else here? Um, there's not much about evangelism in the New Testament, especially the epistles. Wouldn't you love a seven-point sermon on laying foundations? Not there. I mean, Paul must be, you know, really geared up to mission. Why isn't he talking about it? Because he's a de- he's dealing with the biggest hindrance to our mission. He's trying to get the church to believe the right things. But you know the second emphasis, to behave accordingly. So that's why he is so committed to mission that he's focused on authenticity. Because that will undermine everything he preaches. So, we need to build churches that really practice what they Just to bring that up, here's some quotes. The issue that churches must face up to is not so much that people do not believe in God, 
but they do not find the church credible. Young, one young man. The reason I cannot become a Christian is because I see no difference between the way Christians behave and the way non-Christians behave. Wow. Pascal said something very important. He said people believe something primarily because they want to believe that thing. Got it? So this means that you might use a lot of apologetics, a lot of arguments that convinces them that Christianity is true. But if they don't want to believe it, it doesn't matter how good the arguments are, they won't believe it. I've been in... I love apologetics. I'm constantly uh, uh, warring for the gospel. In, and I see people, I've, I've, you know, I have totally won the argument. And they look at me blank and they're no more nearer the kingdom of God than if I play poker with them. Sorry. My humor just slips. I'm trying to be serious today and I'm not working. Anyway. <coughs> But when they see love in action and they see a community that is totally accepting, totally embracing, that is madly in love with God and with one another, passionate about their neighbours, sacrificial, serving, then suddenly they want that and they start believing what the church believes. Because they see what they all long for, and that is authentic community. Authentic community. You getting this? So, we can change, we can open up their minds to the truth because they suddenly really want what we've got. Then we're convinced of the truth. Of it. Sometimes we start with the truth, thinking once they've got the truth, they want what we've got. You know today's, it's postmodernism. What is truth? What I make it up. What's true for me? We mustn't start with, with 21st century young people with truth. We start with, we want to so live our lives, you want what we've got. Yeah, that's how I became a Christian. I became a Christian, came from a completely pagan background. My dad, funny, my dad was a professional gambler. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> he was. And, um, <laughs> and um, do you know what brought me into the kingdom? I had a religious education teacher who was so radically different. I wanted what he wanted. That was it. So I pestered him for a year, asking questions about his faith. And eventually he said, if you want to know more, I'll take you to a church meeting. I thought, that's the most boring thing on the planet. But there was a Chinese meal attached to it, so I went. Anything for a meal. And uh, little did I know that I was going to find myself in a Billy Graham crusade. Yeah, I'm one of those guys who were right at the back, who walked all the way to the front, howling my eyes off, to the floor in total repentance. And from that moment on, I followed Jesus. Because somebody lived authentic. It's that radical. Fourthly, another challenge to us. I think we have to radically change our disciple-making method. 
I really do. See, Jesus had two approaches to the needs of the crowd. He saw the crowd with great compassion, and he knew the answers to the crowds were disciples. That's why he devoted so much of his time with disciples, yeah? But how did he prepare the disciples for the crowds? Here we go. Two ways. Matthew 5 and Matthew 9 and 10. This is Matthew 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Do you see it? The crowds are in need. I've got to teach these guys. Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. You see it? One minute he's in the classroom, next minute it's uh, practical time. Let's go and kick some demons. We have been so critical of Bible college. Do you know what we've done? We've taken the classroom of Bible college and we've just plonked it right in the middle of the church and called it training. I don't like the title, School of Supernatural Ministry. But we need to be humble and say they've got it. They've got it. They've got it. Because they put Matthew 5 and Matthew 10 together. So one minute they're in the classroom learning, next minute they're on the streets uh, treasure hunting or praying for the sick or whatever. I think we need to hold our hands up and say, thank God for those people who've had that revelation and we're on board. We're on board. I have taught every module of Word Plus so I'm not committed to shallow theology. But I will not do Word Plus without the miracles. I won't. I won't do it without the proclamation of the gospel. I won't do it without, take, without taking them out and, uh, and grinding it together with them. That day's over. It's finished. We've got to do it Jesus. Matthew 5, Matthew 10. When I um, got saved, the uh, daughter and her husband of the guy, the teacher, they, um, this is how they discipled me. Uh, I was uh, 16. They said, Grantly, let's go to London. We, I'm in Gloucestershire, 140 miles away. So I bundled in their mini, we drive to London. It's the swinging late very late 60s and we were up and, um, and uh, uh, so we hit the streets so we just uh, we go down to Soho uh, we go to all the seedy areas and uh, we just we just find the drug addicts the alcoholics the prostitutes the homosexuals and many of those sadly were on the streets of the day we just sat with them bought them a meal preached the gospel prayed for them 
Do you know, it's pretty amazing when you're 16 and you pray for a heroin addict and he comes off his heroin and never goes back on. And you're 16 years of age. Now, that would never have happened if they had not discipled me. It wasn't my faith. It wasn't my... I didn't know what I was doing. I was just going along, but I thought this is just normal Christianity. It was there. We've got to get back to those days. That's how we disciple people. And if we disciple people in that way, then boy, I think we'll see a lot more people saved. Fifthly, you still with me? Have we got another five, ten minutes? I'll be quick. I'll totally be quick. Really quick, really quick. Okay. We need to build a community that is an adventurous faith community. I'm not going to say too much of this because... Uh, Angela's going to be really going for this uh, in a moment. But I want to just, just bring this to your attention. When Jesus called his disciples to this radical adventure of faith, which is what you're going to have if you're going to see people saved, you've got to risk it, just like Graham did as a good story. How are you going to get the courage to do that? And we're going to look at that in a moment, one aspect of that. But what did Jesus he created a community. See, I think so often what we're doing is we're stirring people to go out with their rod and to go fishing. Because fishing in the New Testament time was a team and a boat. That was fishing. Because you encourage together. You stir one another together. And it's just amazing when you when you discover that there's other people who are risking it, it stirs you on, it provokes you, it encourages you. Let me just say these things about faith community. The reality is we need an adventurous faith community in order to follow Christ radically and embark on an adventure of faith. I am convinced that one reason many of us have not taken radical steps in a faith venture is because we feel We're all alone. We're isolated. There can be no solution to the problem of fear without the existence of communities capable of of bearing fear together. David Platt tells this story. Now, having read James, the commitment to orphans and widows, he thought we should do something practical about that word. So he contacted what would be their equivalent to social services. He said, if... um, how many people do you need to cover all the adoption and fostering in this province? State. How many do you need? How many people? How many families? How many units? We need 140, she said. So he said, would you come and, um, to our church and just um, not do the hard sell, but just that's about the needs? So she did. So this woman showed that in this whole province, state, uh, they needed 140 families. So, she did that. He then preached on James, the passage about orphans and widows. And then he said, okay, how many of you now want to embark on the process of being foster parents or adopt children? Do you know how many they got? 160 families. Just think about it. 
they solved the whole adoption problem in their whole area, one church. But what a faith adventure. I mean, he was very honest because he adopted. He, he told about all the horrors of adoption. He, wasn't, he didn't put any punches. It's, it's really tough. Blah, blah, blah. And yet 160. Why? Because they did it as a community. They were all together, working with each other, support networks, dealing with the issues. Because they were a faith community. We need to build faith. That's, a, that's a, another sermon I've got. You won't get that today. Okay. Next one. Number six. We must make the mission achievable. We've set the bar too high. We must bring it down. I started a series when I first um, became a Christian, or soon, soon being a Christian. I, I read David Watson and and uh, uh, Michael Green and Billy Graham, and they all looked at, at John chapter 4. They liked John chapter 4. And talking about Jesus the evangelist, and let's do it with Jesus. And so I, I had this great sermon, 21 points. Aren't you glad you haven't got that today? You know, on how did Jesus do it? I went back to those places where I'd preached that, and you know, nothing had changed. And when I did some honest questioning, because we don't often do that, do we? We, don't, we like to just preach and think we've had an impact and then we discover we've had no impact and that made things worse. This is what they said. Grantly, we could do one of those or maybe two of those only. 21, not on your life. Do you know, I asked, my, I, yeah, I asked the question, Grantly, how many of those 21 are you doing? Not many. Maybe I could probably count them on one hand. That's not the place to start, folks. That's an evangelistic work. If you've got a select group of evangelists, then teach them John 4, Jesus. But for the rest of the people, our focus should never be on Jesus in that story, strangely enough. The focus should be on the lady, the woman. You know, evangelists love to tell you their best stories, so I'm going to break that tradition. I'm going to tell you one of my most ordinary stories. Okay? So Heather, she's a single mum now because her, uh, her husband left her and she's just got saved. She's overwhelmed with the gospel. So she wants to share it. So she doesn't know how to share that. So she thinks, right, I, I need to walk into other people's worlds. How can I do that? Well, I've got young kids. I know there's other single parents or other parents who've got problems with kids. I just have them round to our house and and just, we can look after the kids together. So she started a little mum's group. Debbie went along. Heather just thought that the most natural thing to do was to be dead honest and transparent about the fact that she just got saved. So she, very transparent. She told Debbie her story about how she was lost and now she was found. In the kingdom of darkness to light. And then she said, you might be interested, Debbie. We've got a speaker coming on this Sunday. Um, why don't you come along? I'll pick you up. So Debbie comes along. This is my time in Wyndham. So I preach the gospel. I give an appeal. Debbie stands up. She gets gloriously saved. So I start an alpha group in Wyndham. And Debbie comes along because she wants to know more about Christ, so she invites Andy along. Her husband, he gets saved 
in the Alpha course, get baptised in Spirit. Then their two kids come along. They get saved. Debbie's my PA now. Uh, Andy leads our welcome team. And the kids are heavily involved in the life of the church. Now I've got a confession to make. I've lied to you. That is my best thing. That is my best story. Do you know why it's the best story? Because any of you can do it. You can do it. You can do that stuff. You can all do that. In most of the stories we hear, it's just, I can never do that. That you can. You can be a heather. Debbie and Andy have gone on to bring their own people to Africa. Let me give you the next slide. This is what it says about the woman. Going back to the woman. Leaving a water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Of course, they all got saved. Not because of Jesus, initially, but because of the woman. Jesus saved one, she saved the whole village. That's pretty good, isn't it? And Jesus was absolutely thrilled. So this is what I teach. Next slide. This is what I teach about evangelism. There's another sermon, so I'm not going to give you that one. I just say to people, just walk into other people's worlds in the most natural way that you can do it. And when you're there, just be totally honest and open about the most important thing in your life. Do you know, you, you, you know, when you meet people in the world, they'll tell you the most important thing in their lives. Why are we so reticent to do that? Thirdly, just, that's all you've got to do. Don't worry about the questions, about the, all the intricacies of the gospel. Look, that's for me to do. That's for your church leaders to do. I, tell, I give people, people permission, don't, you don't have to worry about any questions, just send them to me. Okay? And they do. Just tell them your story. That's all she did. I met a man who, what well, wasn't much of a testimony, was it? He just told me everything. That's my testimony. Just do that. You can do that, yeah? And then finally, just invite them. Just invite. We recently had an alpha supper uh, and uh, put on a hog roast. And, uh, you know, I, I struggle like you do. Um, my church um, is still a very much a work in progress. We're far from where I want it to be. And, uh, you know, sometimes we have things and not many people get invited, not many people come. Uh, we had 270 at this alpha supper. And uh, we've now got our largest alpha we've ever had because the people caught it they can do this we can do this and they did it people I've never ever seen before from walks of life I didn't think we were touching but we are now seven finally yay I think we need to regain an appropriate biblical understanding of being baptised in the spirit we need fire. 
we really need. Let me read to you Acts 1. You know this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Do you know, I've discovered this. I don't understand it. It's a mystery, but I'll share it with you. If you, um, if you go for tongues in baptism in the Spirit, guess what you get? Tongues. If you go for prophecy, you'll get people when they're baptised in the Spirit. You know, if you, if you go for people being slain in the Spirit, I hate that word, but you know, you'll get that. What is Jesus supposed to go for? That you will be my witnesses. So I'm a shy, but even I was a shy, you know, an assuming young Christian who wouldn't say boo to a goose. I'm serious. Nobody knew I was a Christian at school until I got baptised in the Spirit. And I couldn't stop talking about it. Just a few of us started a Christian union. School was about 550 pupils. By the end of the first year of our Christian union, sometimes we'd have over 200 in our meetings. I remember leading people to Christ in the classroom. I remember seeing people baptised in the Spirit in the break time. I remember one guy, Stephen, who was in my football team, my high football team, we were playing football and, it, uh, and halfway through the game he was just came under such conviction he said, I've just got to get saved. So I said, look, wait till the ball gets up to our... We're attacking. <laughs> he was in defence. No, I've been practical here. And he literally got on his knees and confessed his sins while we were scoring a goal. Yeah? It's true. It's true. No exaggeration. What was the difference? Baptised in fire. You know the verses. From a coward, suddenly Peter stands up and he's bold with the eleven. Next minute we find that they are described, him and John, that they're men with such amazing courage. Why? Because they've been with Jesus. Wrong. I love, I love the Bible, but sometimes it's wrong. <laughs> Actually, what it's saying is, they were wrong. Okay? They were just, that's what they said. They said they'd been with Jesus. No, 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 no. It wasn't that. It was because now Jesus lived in I think when we go for that baptism in the Spirit, that's what we get. That's what we get. We get people radically changed from timid to courageous. That seems to be the authentic evidence of being baptised in the Spirit. And that's what we should go for. Who's that? You've been really gracious to me. Thank you so much for your time. Longer than...